about Call of Cthulhu, horror movies, and horror gaming in general. And this week, we bring you part two of our Haunter of the Dark special. But this... before we do that, oh, let's yes, introduce, we're ourselves. introduce ourselves. Do you know, every week we sit here and we say, <laughs> what we're going to do, we're going to do the intro and then we're going to introduce ourselves, and we never do. Oh, no, well, we do it after about the third take. Okay, but yeah. we're well, doing when it all we in one take that, today. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Max Anderson. Okay, and... Episode 2, The Haunter of the Dark, in brackets, the gaming episode. So, yes, last episode, which I'm sure you've just listened to, or listened to a week ago, I, uh, but yeah, I'm sure you've listened to it at some point, and it's, it's still present in your memory somewhere, and if it You're isn't... Quite sure about that? Well, if it isn't, you might want to go back and, and listen to it, but if you don't want to go back and listen to it, you can probably get away with not doing that if you've read the stories, and... What am I talking about? Last time on, dot, dot, dot. Yeah, anyway, so... <laughs> <laughs> yes. Previously on the Good Friends of Jackson Elias. <laughs> so yes, we last time we talked about the stories themselves. Um, so it's not just the Haunter of the Dark, but it's the two stories that bracketed the Robert Block stories. Should we do an episode about us recording the episode about talking about? The that sounds of the like Dark. a bloody good idea. You're getting a bit too meta now. This is <laughs> <laughs> that format could keep us going for years. Life imitating yeah. art now. Well, I'm not sure about the art, but <laughs> recursive podcasting is the way for the future. <laughs> But yes, yes, last time we talked about the three stories, um, The Shambler from the Stars, The Haunter of the Dark, and The Shadow from the Steeple. Uh, this week we're going to talk about games that are inspired by them, uh, either published ones or uh, stuff that we can take from these stories and bring into our own games. So I'd like to kick things off with a look at the description of the strange unnamed creature at the end of Robert Bloch's story, The Shambler from the Stars. Which reads, A reddish glow filled the corner by the window, a bloody glow, but surely the dim outlines of a presence came into view. The blood-filled outlines of that unseen shambler from the stars. It was red and dripping, an immensity of pulsing, moving jelly, a scarlet blob with a myriad tentacular trunk that waved and waved. There were suckers on the tips of the appendages, and these were opening and closing with ghoulish lust. The thing was bloated and obscene, a headless, faceless, eyeless bulk with the ravenous moor and titanic talons of a starborn monster. The human blood on which it had fed revealed the hitherto invisible outlines of the feaster. It was not a sight for sane eyes to see. And there we have the thing that becomes known as a star vampire. Yes. I don't think it's named as such in the story, is it? No, it no, isn't. No, no. no, it is simply the shambler from the stars, this mm-hmm. unseen, invisible entity that you know, Ludwig Prynn had learned how to uh, summon as his servant, mm-hmm. and which the, the Lovecraft analogue in the story accidentally summons. Yeah, it's a pretty fantastic beast. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, um, I, and and quite terrifying because you know there's this whole idea that you know it, it is invisible until it sucks the life out of you. 
it is reminiscent, at least for me, re- rereading it again, of the description for H.G. Wells's Martians, in the sense that they, in War of the mm. Worlds, that they did feed feed on human blood. Yes. And that it's again that's thinking back to Jeff Wayne's musical version with the over um, with um, Richard Burton doing the voiceover and how he describes it like uh, larger than the bear with its lipless mouth quivered and tentacles writhed and pulsated etc etc. It's very evocative of that kind of style. Well, that's how they're described in the book as well. There you go. And it's a pretty tough critter in the Call of Cthulhu rules. Yeah, you know, to face up against mm. one, uh, it's a pretty tough monster. Luckily enough, I've never had the, I've never had the horror of doing so. Have you not? No. Okay. Hopefully, you'll, you'll have to correct this at some point. You know. Well, uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> I won't. Uh, I won't say what scenario I've got in mind, but yeah. Um, but but uh, another kind of chilling aspect of it, it's a thing that I think handled wrong could be. Um, you know, quite silly, but the way it's described as tittering in the book, yeah, you know, that, that um, you know, this this almost childish laughter that you know accompanies it, which for such a, a monstrous, you know, devouring creature, it's is described as tittering. Yes, yeah, the, the, the word tittering is used in the story because that is used in the description in in the rules. I, I yeah. seem to recall. No, no, when I was rereading <clears throat> the story, it jumped out at me for exactly that reason. Yeah. It's a bit uh, reminiscent of the, the night gaunt tickling. Yes. Which has always seemed a bit curious as well. Yeah, well, if, if I remember correctly, that came out of Lovecraft's Nightmares. From his to, dreams, yeah. yeah, yeah. But, but yeah, again, it's, you know, it's this almost perversion of childhood innocence. Here we go, here's the line. Uh, Once again there came the sound of a maniacal tittering, but this time it came from within the room! Exclamation mark. Yeah. I mean, the danger is that, as with any of these monsters, that it becomes a kind of a vampiric, invisible beholder or something, like a D&D monster. Yeah. Um, which, there's no reason that can't be great in, in the right context, but, um, yeah, to try and... How does one capture that kind of horror of that thing in a game? I don't, it almost seems wrong to be kind of getting in combat with it, really, which is yes. how, how these things can often kind of end up. Well, you'll just end... In general, yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not a huge fan, as I've said before, uh, of scenarios which is basically identify the monster, then load up on guns and dynamite and go off and kill it. Mm-hmm. I can think, unfortunately, of far too many of those I've played. Um, and yeah, I, if I were to use a, a, a star vampire in a story, I guess I'd I'd use it in. A, you know, off the top of my head, a situation where um, the investigators, well, for a start, were completely you know ill-equipped to deal with it, where it then became a game of, of survival, of you know avoiding it, trying to find a way to contain it, deal with it, um, or just get the hell out of dodge. Yeah, maybe after having had it set on you by a um, by the antagonist of the pe- of the piece actually have it as a Ludwig Prin equivalent. You have someone who's been able to command them, summon them, and has used this thing to set it against the PCs. I like picturing them in a hotel room with nothing but plastic cutlery. Makes <laughs> me think they're Magneto. Well, no, this thing you've got nothing, nothing to fight with, you know. Yes. Well, I don't know. You can do a lot of damage with a plastic spork. Uh, mm-hmm. D2? Depends where you <laughs> shove it. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's if you impale. Oh, there we go. Yeah. I'm not sure plastic sports can impale. Oh, well, well, yes. Yeah. If, if they break, yeah. Snap it and you've got a good shiv. 
Come on, you, you get the plastic spork, you jam it into someone, it breaks halfway through and the knife bit goes right into them. You can't even eat your dinner with the damn things. How are you going to cut someone up with that? <sighs> okay, okay. No, Let's, I think we're digressing. You, you can imagine a star vampire, but you can't imagine shiving someone with a plastic spork. <laughs> I, think, I think the plastic fork, maybe, maybe I shouldn't have mentioned that, and maybe that's for a future episode. Part three. <laughs> plastic cutlery. Yeah. So if we're looking at the monsters, let's move on to the Haunter of the Dark itself. Now, the Haunter, the, the, the Haunter of the Dark has turned up in a, a list a couple of different uh, Chaosium scenarios. I remember back in the 80s, one of the first scenarios... I, in fact, the first scenario I ran after The Haunting um, was one that turned up in Different Worlds number 34, I think, uh, which was called The Crystal of Chaos, which has since been revised and expanded and put in House of Rillier. Um and, yeah, I, I must have run this scenario about three or four times. Uh, and the scenario is largely the Haunter of the Dark. Um, I mean, there are a few twists and turns to it, uh, yeah. uh, but there's, you know, not a lot to it that's not in the stories, apart from um, a bit of combat with the mummy, which, yeah. Um, anyway. Yeah, I didn't feature heavily in Lovecraft's story. But he does mention <clears throat> he does mention how the uh, the box was... Um, buried away for many years in a in an Egyptian pyramid, I think. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that kind of Egyptian link. Um, I was a little disappointed in the the Crystal of Chaos that you get in there. You know, nobody's apparently been in there since the Haunter of the Dark, and there is the Necronomicon sat there, but it's too old and rotted to be any good. And it's like, oh, really? Cock tease. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So there's there's a couple there's uh, it's kind of like you're in the bargain basement then and there's just like the nameless cults golden goblin edition. Uh, Doctor Bowen's notebook is there in Aklo. If you have got six weeks, you can get it read, <laughs> and of course speak Aklo and survive the haunted of the dark having coming after you for six weeks. Yeah, yeah, um, but well, not just the haunter of the dark. If if I remember correctly from running the scenario a while back, he comes with friends. Uh, in that um, he's he's got one or two hunting horrors which he lets loose on people. Mm-hmm. Which yeah, Pleasant. is yeah, is is pretty bad news. It's party time on Federal Hill. <laughs> <laughs> so we had we had difficulty with one of them when we played Mask of the Arthur, let alone. Yeah. Dozens of them. No, I, 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 it's either one or two, but there's you know, still one or two too many. Yes, I, I, I remember it being. You know, when I ran it one time, this this car chase through Providence with hunting horrors chasing <laughs> this. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. Starts bearcat or something. Yeah, hunting horrors of Nalathotep. Um. Yep, and the Haunter of the Dark, Avatar of Nalathotep. Yeah, no, we, we, listed as monsters in the back of the scenario. We, we probably should put nose ahead of this. Spoiler warning! To, yeah, we, we're going to completely spoil these scenarios. Yeah, you are for me, I know, because I haven't played either of these. But oh well. Yeah. I, make, the I scenario, make sacrifices. The scenario presented in the House of Rillier is some um, set-up uh, to introduce also Dr. Ronald Galloway, a respected Egyptologist, um, who also features in The Fungi from Yogoth. And oh. is also a character in the Miskatonic University supplement. Oh. Uh, so it's kind of hinted that you know you should let your characters talk to him, but um, don't let him get killed. 
Oh. Yeah, so he kind of he kind of wanders off after having you know, kind of They're done his info dump. Yeah. Um, so obviously it'd be no good with the, with Matt playing that game. I, I just there's two things that get me is where you find in a scenario oh you can't allow the players to do this and the other one where an NPC has a monologue because the minute they start monologuing I'll shoot them. Um, the <laughs> it's other been one effective so far actually it's quite a good strategy. There you go. See it works. <laughs> Hello Matt not. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I just I just don't like it when there's written into the text that the PCs cannot do this. Their actions will not affect this NPC. You must not let them do this or the other. You're taking away a lot of their freedom and their fun. And and yeah, to be fair, in a lot of the published scenarios from the eighties, you you you'll find elements of that. Hmm. Um, and yeah, I I agree. It drives me out the ball. Uh, yeah, I, I think I don't think it's it's something that's still in style now with scenarios that are written these days quite so much. No, it's, I don't think so. It's not something I've seen in the Call of Cthulhu scenario. I think since the eighty. Well, no, the, the last time I encountered it was probably uh, Beyond the Mountains of Madness, where there's a bit of that. Hmm. Um, well, where we cheered when Starkweather was uh, carried across the uh, carried across the sky, going yes. <laughs> Are we going to chase him? Oh, let them have, ways, have, have the way with him. You probably should chase him. Oh, <laughs> but, but yes, yeah. It's. It, I, I think as a scenario no, it still writer, happens. It still happens. Really? Yeah, I think so. I mean, as a scenario writer, it's tempting to you know, sort of put these set pieces in there because yes, I mean, obviously you want. Um, you, you want to try to give the GM something, you know, kind of definitive that they can present to the players, and you know that does tend to mean that certain things have to happen. Uh, you know, the, the problem with this, you know, is always balancing that with player agency, um, and yeah, yeah. I, I, personally, yeah, I, I, I'm sure you know plenty of other people out there will disagree with me, but personally, any time I see you know this must happen, or you know. Or regardless of what the players do, yes. dot dot dot, mm-hmm. then you know it, they, my my hackles rise. No, you're definitely not the only one. So back to the crystal of chaos. It's a pretty. Um, I think it's uh, a bit of a toolbox that you kind of run and have the haunter of the dark kind of influence your players in all sorts of ways. You're, you're kind of given the the, the setting, and there, you know, there is a scenario there, but quite how your characters. Are, the story that you create could be quite different each time, I think, can't it? depending on you okay. know how your characters end up getting influenced by the Haunter of the Dark and so on. So uh, that, that may be significantly different then from uh, the version that I, I uh, used back in Different Worlds. I, I know it's been revised for the House of Rillier, uh and yeah, I, I seem to remember the, the version the, that uh, I used being much more of a monster bash. Hmm. Yeah, I th- well... But yeah, that, that, come that down twi- to the the keeper's interpretation. I think. I, and and also, I mean, that was twenty five years ago, and again, things have changed a bit since then. Just a little. And the other place that uh, that the Haunter of the Dark features is in one of the scenarios in Unseen Masters, published in two thousand and one, written by Bruce Ballon, um, a I believe Canadian. Why do I think Canadian? Maybe I'm wrong about that. Well, I think you just assume everyone's Canadian, Paul. Well, yeah, we're both looking blank you on, blankly at you on this one. Now, I remember the um, the chap that I did some work with from Cass Business School went over to visit him. Oh, okay. Um, that was about the last I heard of him. But but but, but ultimately, everyone is Canadian until proved otherwise. I think so. It's good enough for William Shatner. Yeah. 
And if it's good enough for William Shatner, it's good enough for us. Or you just want to blame Canada. So the story is, the scenario is coming of age. Um, and Unseen Masters is a book that I've had on my shelf for many years and never really taken the time to, to study to a great degree, but it does look like it would really pay off. Um, the writing is of a, of a high standard and there's quite a lot of, in, in the intro to Coming of Age, he introduces it suggesting that the Keeper have some of the players generate characters which are quite integrated with the plot. Nice. Um, and there are some NPCs which should be kind of closely woven in um, with the players. And the themes that um, Bruce kind of brings into this scenario and some of the others are kind of more mature kind of themes than one sometimes sees in, in Lovecraft, perhaps coming from his kind of psychiatric background um kind of brings in well i won't go into too much detail about what what's what's in the scenario but uh it's yeah pretty cool and he reinterprets what the shining trapezohedron actually does so he doesn't just sort of take it as canon from the previous chaosium books he says here is what it does in my game and and I think that's that's you know something that's always worth doing, hmm. um, yeah. That I mean Lovecraft himself, I've I've said this in in other podcasts, was pretty inconsistent with the way he used elements himself, and being inconsistent with stuff will keep players on their toes, will stop people getting bored with um, seeing the same elements come up again, being able to predict what's going to happen. Yeah, we can go against canon, change stuff. Um, he didn't. Yeah. He didn't sit there with his own encyclopedia Cthulhuana from the outset and decided to cross-reference everything as he wrote. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about things that are beyond human understanding, that are thoroughly alien. You know, why should they be consistent, and why should you be tied down to one writer's description of them? So yeah, go to town. Mm-hmm. So I, the, the Haunter of the Dark as a monster, I think, is quite an interesting one because. Yeah, I mean, there's this whole idea for a start that it's an avatar of Nihalathotep. Um, we've seen, you know, in both The Haunter of the Dark itself and in The Shambler of the Stars, the effects that it can have by possessing a human being. But there, there's more to it than that. There's the subtle influences that, you know, when it starts getting its, its inky tendrils into your mind. The fact that it changes your perception, it changes your perception of light and dark, of distance. Um, the fact that you can find yourself taking actions without really realising. In some respects, you know, it's almost like bouts of insanity in the game that, you know, perhaps you can have the, this influence coming in and then suddenly kind of snap out of it a little while later, realising you've done something. Yeah, or not realising you've done it. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, the, the altered perceptions, you know, I, I think are an incredibly powerful element. Mm. You know, dro- dropping into a game, you know, something like, you know, um, you, 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 you've been going through this this room or this house or something like that, and you know, observing stuff. And one of the other party members comes in behind you and, and says, "You know, why haven't you put the lights on? You, you, you've been completely unaware that you've been going around in the dark <laughs> looking at all this. That's got to be a great freakout moment." Yes, yes. He uh, again in um, in coming of age, Balon says. Um, the description of his Haunter of the Dark is modified from the descriptions of the Haunter of the Dark that appear in the Creature Companion and the Keeper's Companion number one. 
Um, so he goes into details about the mind link, the possession, uh, the sight, and the, the, the effects of light and the moon and stars upon uh, the Haunter of the Dark. And he gives a lovely description of it. Um, in this form, the Lathotep resembles a giant bat. Its one facial, facial feature is a three-lobed burning eye. Thin, writhing tentacles trail from beneath its tattered wings as it soars through the sky, and this was the bit that I liked, trailing out a smoky vapour of throffing protoplasmic bubbles. Nice. Um, this writhing living spore dissipates as the horror flies on, but lasts for at least a minute. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. That's, oh, a, like that's that. a pretty wonderful image of uh, this like thing. Infernal jet, infernal jet stream of bubbles. Yeah. And stench. Of, uh, yeah, filth behind it. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yes, I like that. Uh, he says that the haunter is semi-material and can fly through solid objects. Like glass window panes. Although it can also manipulate material objects if it desires to. Yeah. Best no, of the, both worlds. Well, that's kind of cool. I, I, the, the thing I like about the, the approach there is this, you know, very much... You know, it doesn't seem to be a monster to be fought. This is, you know, a, a dangerous, corrupting influence that, that's, you know, getting its tendrils into your mind and your life, yeah, and and changing things. This is, um, you know, this is a more subtle enemy than, mm-hmm. you know, something that's just there to eat your face off. Yeah, it's a menace rather than a, an adversary. Well, it. it's, it's not just that, but it's it's not there to do anything so mundane as to kill you. No, very true. If it wanted to, it could. Yeah, I'm looking at the stats it. right now. Your face is a damage definitely... bonus of 7d6. If you um, wanted to, it very much could kill you. <laughs> so, five point armor, skin. Uh, and this is kind of, it's writing a scenario like this is almost obligatory to put these kind of stats in. Yeah. Um, but um, it's almost more horrifying to have it intangible in form and it's, it's mind link and possession be the, the horrifying things yeah. that can. Mm-hmm. It can use rather than it turn into a, a combat situation with it. Yeah, I mean, the, the, this is going back to you know some things we were discussing in the, discussing in the corruption episode a while back. That you know the the the, the, the mythos in general pre- presents much more horrifying options than mere death. Mm-hmm. Indeed, the the sound loss for this thing is one d eight stroke three d ten. Nice. That's pretty one, serious. Pretty one, heavy. One for each lobe. <laughs> 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 can't say fairer than that <laughs> so I guess the only other monster to touch on there would be you know someone who has actually been possessed uh, along the lines of um, Dr uh, Dexter Dr yeah. Dexter is it it is Ambrose De- Dexter is his last name yes, yes Dexter Dr. is Dexter, Dexter yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yes yeah like Dr Dexter um, so Again, yeah, I, I think it's it's much more interesting to you know again treat uh, an entity like that as a subtle menace within a game. You know, the, the, again, this isn't a job for shotguns and dynamite. No, no, this is exactly how it's pretty much explicitly stated as one of the as the canon option anyway. Is how you handle Stephen Alziz in Delta Green that he is an avatar of the Arthur and that he's this figure that you might meet when investigating the occult underground in New York, that person that happens to know everyone, knows everything, never lifts a finger to attack you directly, because he has people to do that for him. It's But he's always the man behind the curtain. 
it's again they're almost like a force of nature rather than someone that you wander up to a sh- and wander up to with with a shotgun. Well, our protagonist Edmund Fisk in the story had a gun at point blank range and still look what happened to him. Yeah. All the all the Doctor Dexter needed to do was turn off a light switch. Yeah, which yeah, I, I think when you're dealing with uh, a manipulative, clever enemy like that, that you know, with, within a game, the options you should be looking at are you know tr- trying to find ways of manipulating the situation, of, of neutralising the menace in other ways, um, mm-hmm. or you know, in a lot of cases, just simply surviving. Hmm. Um, you know, in, in the case of you know, say something like the you know, the shadow from the steeple. I, if that were in a game where if you discovered that there was this avatar of Neolithotep that was basically building up the nuclear weapons program with the idea of creating this ultimate confrontation, I, I'm not sure what you'd really do about it because you know at the stage you're encountering it there, the genie's pretty much out of the bottle. So that, that, that would make one hell of a good seed for a campaign, actually, mm. thinking that if you were to be the group that found out, by the way, this is happening, now what do you do? You're up, you're up against potentially the whole government, um, the whole nuclear weapons program, the start of what could become um, the flashpoint for nuclear war. You've got a hell of a set of choices in front of you. How, how do you deal with a situation like you, that? You found CND. <laughs> Sorry, the, the, the campaign for nuclear disarmament. All oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> I keep forgetting how young Matt is. <laughs> I didn't even get why you were having to explain that. Okay. <laughs> CND were the anti-nuclear movement in the UK in the uh, the sixties and seventies. I, 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 I found I it as a result of uh, the Cthulhu mythos. Is yeah, you're obviously. <laughs> yes. I'm sure it's got a true acronym out there that means something far more uh, eldritch. <laughs> Campaign to for Neolithic destruction. There you go. <laughs> I'm just checking out the uh, the Haunter of the Darks. Uh, powers of possession. There's one of three outcomes. One for each lobe. Uh, you can. Um, <laughs> That's going to be a catchphrase. From now. <laughs> you can. Uh, you can. Have, have you noticed how there are three of us presenting this? Well, there is oh indeed. And, and indeed, and our brand new microphone, the Yeti, has three microphones inside it. It does. <laughs> it's all coming together. A microphone horribly. for each lobe. <laughs> I'll copy the one charger each time you say that. Now. The haunter can possess a person by matching its power against the victim's power um, with some special rules. A roll of 96 to 100 always results in the prospective host dying from a fear-induced heart attack. Okay, that's not good. A la Admin Fisk. Uh, or uh, Robert Blake. Yeah, potentially. Um, a, a simple success, less than 96, but half the number needed for success results in the victim's mind and body being unable to contain the force of the haunter. This melts the target's brain. Scanners. <laughs> oh, it doesn't... Head- no, no, because he can survive. <laughs> he can survive the melted brain? Come on! <laughs> At the rate of 1d6 in per round, as well as inflicting 4d6 points of damage upon the victim by electrical discharge. You could roll lucky. It's got a bit of brain melt, right? <laughs> I could roleplay that. <laughs> I'm sure I could after having lost several white Russians at the table. Come on! A white Russian for each lobe. <laughs> oh dear. Uh, or, or, or you just get possessed. I, I'm somehow thinking that num- um, option number two is sounding the better one here. So, um, yeah, so the Haunter of the Dark, some pretty good 
pretty good stuff there, I think. Yeah. I mean, that's the fun thing about the laugh tape, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> He's just that fun kind of guy. Yeah. Well, you know, there's, there's like yeah. a thousand faces. You've you got so many things you can do with him. Yes. Um, and so you've kind of got this flexibility to, to have him, you know, appear in all sorts of forms, whether it be a mundane human form or a, a sanity-blasting god form or this kind of strange creature that can possess and, and mind-link with you. I, I, and and also, you know, what makes him uh, an interesting antagonist is he's, he's one of the few mythos entities that will actually engage with humans on human terms. Well, he's one of the only ones that has a personality. Yeah. Yeah, I've always struggled with this a bit, though. I mean, why would he actually want to create nuclear weapons and, and destroy humanity? It's more fun watching them blow themselves apart rather than him do the work. Um, or just to wipe the slate clean before the return of the Great Old Ones. Yeah, as it says, to blow Earth's dust away. No, oh, fair enough, fair enough. So, aside from the um, the monsters that appear in these couple of stories, we've got a key artefact here, the Shining Trapezohedron, which we talked yes. about in the last episode, um, quite what the shape of it is. It's not um, a D10, really. <laughs> and it's not three-lobed. I didn't even go there, okay? <laughs> Uh, Balon gives a nice description of it. A four-inch long, irregularly faceted crystal, black with veins of red. In darkness, the crystal glows with a hellish inner crimson light. Uh, He then goes on to describe some of its um, effects and powers. Uh, He tells how sensitive or psychic characters can detect the presence of something utterly evil if if they are within... uh, In what seventh... This is like converting um, metric to imperial measures... Um, in uh, seventh ed money, this would be pal times two feet of it, um, and it can be detected by things like Geiger counters, which does link in quite nicely with the uh, shadow from the steeple. Oh, it kind of does, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, it's also is uh, a window and a gate to other dimensions, and he talks about the effects of what might happen if you tried to take the thing through a gate with you. Uh, it would kind of As basically that's that's a pretty much a, a clean slate for the keeper to to screw you over <laughs> however they want and just chuck you anytime, any when, uh, anywhere really. It's like a feedback but, loop. Yeah, but, the but, gate kind of explodes. But I mean, th- th- this to me is you know, apart from the you know, monster summoning side of it, the, 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 this is uh, yeah, the most interesting thing about the shiny trapezohedron to me that that it is this this portal into to these other realms, as we discussed in the last episode, these these utterly alien realms. Um, and you know, th- this I think is something that you know, certainly if I'm using it in a game, I could really go to town with because yeah, you know, I love the idea of these these uh, bringing these strange alien landscapes and worlds into play. That you know, perhaps you know, the, under the right circumstances, the the trapezohedron or something like it could be used for a bit more than that. You know, it could be used to perhaps bring elements of the, through muddle the you know the two worlds together. Um, Almost like two photos overlaid. Yeah, in that sense. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that, that, I think I think that would be fantastic. He talks about how use, viewing through the crystal is addictive. Um, some of the effects that it has, and the um, the how it allows the haunter of the dark to make psychic contact. Um, he also brings in another power of the crystal. 
is the power to accelerate bodily metamorphoses uh, that may be taking place. So if you've got something already going on, maybe something in your blood, um, that it can kind of bring this to fruition very quickly. So, yeah, if it turns out you've got some Innsmouth blood in you. Yeah, that's going to be coming out pretty quick. Nice. Which I thought was a nice touch. I always like the fact that, you know, you take these, um, well, as, as we said said earlier about the, about the creatures, um, the shining trapezohedron, these artefacts, who knows what things they can do beyond... Um, the, the things that are already hinted at. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, but, uh, at the risk of sounding like a stuck record, don't feel constrained by what's in the scenarios or what's in the Lovecraft stories. You know, if you want to use one of these elements, you know, just add stuff to it. Yeah, Bruce Ballon did just that. So uh, recommend that one, Unseen Masters. It's a book that I've had on my shelf for a long time. Admittedly, I've I've got a pretty extensive uh, Call of Cthulhu collection. Most of which I haven't read because it's also um, a lot of them as the scenario books that I want to play first. Well, I think I'm going to read that one through again and um, perhaps run that. Yeah, I mean, it would I'd run. It's quite, a, yeah. it's, it's quite a substantial book, and there's only, I think, three scenarios in it. They're pretty major works. Hmm. Um, Coming of Age is perhaps the, the smallest one, but it's, it still um, would run for several sessions, I would have thought. Cool. Oh, there you go. You count yeah. me in if you run it. Yeah, hmm. same here. Yeah, and another interesting aspect to the stories, which I think you know would be reflected in uh, in the game, uh, is the the sheer volume of, of mythos tomes, you know, as we discussed in the last episode, that are just sitting there in the free will church. Yeah. So uh, you've got the book in front of you, Matt. What what tomes are they? Indeed, prefaced uh, <laughs> by the sentence he had read many of them himself, thinking, yeah, he had a hell of a lot of Cthulhu myth, Cthulhu mythos skill, and not much sanity. Um, a Latin version of the Abhorred Necronomicon, the Sinister Liber Ivonis, uh, the infamous Cult de Gaulle, uh, the Unersplicken Colton of von Junst, uh, an old Ludwig Prince Hellish Divermis Mysteries. But there are also others here, only many heard by reputation. Uh, the Narcotic Manuscripts, which I never pronounce right every time I try. Um, the Book of Dizian. Dizan. Dizan, that's it, another one I can't pronounce. And a crumbling volume in wholly unidentifi- unidentifiable characters, which is the book in Aklo. Excellent. So yeah, you got a shed load of mythos knowledge right mm-hmm. there. Yeah, I mean, so so I mean, let, let's just say you're playing a Call of Cthulhu game, and your your character comes across that pile in a church. <laughs> <laughs> this, this, how for a start, how game breaking is that? Uh, I, I think, is it game breaking? Well, I, I, I wouldn't I say guess. game breaking. It's, it's sanity breaking, especially yeah. if you read them all. Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm thinking game breaking not in terms of you know the traditional yeah D and D problem of you know hang on I've given them a much too powerful magical weapon. I'm thinking game breaking in terms of yeah a yeah yes all right the sanity loss. I mean you know one character going through all that would just destroy them. Um, Take a long uh, but, time but, as well. I mean, but that 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 was the the big thing that I was coming on to. The, mm. You know, that, I mean, that's taking characters out of play for what a year or two, something mm. like that. Even if they're splitting it up between them. We played Escape from Innsmouth and then followed it up with Nars of Neartheletep, and we had a very long downtime section in between them. And I remember we came away with an armful of books from that because I remember mm. my um, the character I played in Mars of Neartheletep ended up with along the region of forty seven points of Cthulhu Mythos. And a large part of that he'd collected in that downtime from reading all that stuff while he was admittedly in and out of psychiatric hospital, <laughs> as you had to be by the <laughs> end of that adventure. But yeah, that was we, we did come away with a lot of tomes. So there, there are examples where that does happen. Okay. I mean, we'll talk about reading tomes in 
the seventh ed rules on a future week, but um, the it is going to take inarguably some months at least to read some of these terms, even if you know one is one reads them quickly. I would have said so. So we've got a half dozen like this. I you know the, the one character trying to go through all those that would be years. Yeah, I would have thought it's going to be a couple of years' work there, getting getting through all of that lot, yeah. isn't it? Easily, um, and and a, a lot of knowledge that they're going to gain from it. Um, what does that do for the game? I mean, if if you were the keeper and you were giving the players those books on a plate uh, like that, then you're really saying to the players, you know, this is a game where. I want you. I want your characters to have lots of Cthulhu Mythos knowledge. Uh, it's probably going to be quite a high magic game. You're going to have all access to all these spells that you can potentially use, or maybe you're just kind of baiting the trap, really, saying, mm. "Yeah, come on, you think you can handle all these spells and knowledge? It's really going to screw yeah. you over." Yeah, I mean that, that, that's that's sort of what I meant by my game breaking there as well. I mean, again, it's not this idea of of putting too much power in the the player character's hands. I I've really thought that's a bad idea, but it, it's just sort of a question of you know, like giving a bunch of children a few sticks of dynamite. Mm. I normally buy a case at a time, but that's me. <laughs> I mean, think once they start using those spells, they've already. Um, expended a lot of sanity reading those books and boosted their Cthulhu Mythos knowledge, uh, lowered their maximum sanity significantly, then they're going to start burning sanity casting the spells. Yeah, mm-hmm. Especially with a lot of the more potent ones they do cost, they do cost everything, uh, they cost something each time they're cast. Mm. Remember the uh, prime example, Walker in the Waste that we played as part of the playtest. I started on 90-odd San ended up highest got was 96 and then started casting that spell that was quite similar to dominate and eroded through the rest of the sanity until I hit 12 at the end of the, uh, the campaign <laughs> so yeah I mean I've never really understood the reluctance to give out the books I think I, I, th- I guess my only reluctance in giving them out is about making it feel too um, too easy and too common to find these things. Yes. Um, if, if you've played a, with a um, keeper who is tight on the books and then you actually come across one, that's really exciting. You think, oh my God, have we actually found the book? This is fantastic. <laughs> we struck gold! And then you spend ages kind of, yes, I dig a hole in my you know bedroom wall and like fake a brick to go and cover it up and you're guarding it with your life and trying to learn French. <laughs> Somehow an NPC still steals it from you. Yeah. <laughs> um. Or another PC in a lot of instances I can think of. <laughs> But the, the the other book that was that was there was this one that was written in cryptograms, which translated into Aglo. Now, <laughs> that got me in game terms thinking of puzzles in games, um, because you know the, the, this is something I've come across, admittedly more in D and D type games, but you know where you you're, you're given a puzzle within a game. You're shaking, you're shaking I your head. I can see Paul shaking his head. Right. He knows We're where this going is going. He going knows there. where this is going. I, I don't. So please carry on. <laughs> I, I want to see Paul's reaction as well. So I've got so, to... no. no. <laughs> I want to get out. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I'm going to cough over it. 
<laughs> a personal hatred of mine is solving puzzles and riddles in-game. You know, I, I find it slows things down, it doesn't do anything fun. Um, You're so good at it. <laughs> and, and yeah, I, I've played a few games where this has been the case, including... Black helicopters are coming! <laughs> <laughs> they're they're, they're, they're coming to your rescue! <laughs> I don't know if the mic's picking that up, but there's a big helicopter. It will do. Yeah. Well, that's pretty cool. They yes. fly. They follow the pylons, I think. All right. They get some big double-winged ones coming across sometimes. <laughs> uh, sometimes right over the house. They look, I, 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 I kind of tend to dash out and give them a wave. I don't know why. <laughs> so you've done a really good job of trying to distract me. But it's a bit like failed. Night Vale, you know, the colours <laughs> of the helicopters and so on. <laughs> Yeah, what were we talking about? I've forgotten. <laughs> we, we, <laughs> right, now... So, puzzles! So, puzzles in games. I remember one occasion, Paul... <laughs> with, who, who was running that game? Um, well, it was the entirety of the Cult of Keepers. Uh, at, at uh, what was it? Um, Continuum, about six years ago, eight years ago. Um, and... There was a game that was run that that at some point I I I, I Paul was GMing and Mike Mason was there as well. Actually, to be fair, I think Mike was GMing and I was assisting. We we were GMing together. <laughs> Mike was your scapegoat. I, yeah. I can hear the blame being shifted. <laughs> I, and and at some point, um, my character had uncovered this um, document that was written in a fairly basic substitution cipher, and I looked at it. And I realised that it was a, subs- a substitution cipher, and saying, "Oh right, yeah, it's a substitution cipher," and looked meaningfully at Paul and Mike, and they looked back at me. And I, I, I think s- we actually just looked at the, the books in front of us, <laughs> didn't make eye contact, <laughs> and I had to spend the next two fucking hours sitting there, <laughs> character by character, doing this cipher. <laughs> I, and yeah, six years, eight years on, I still haven't forgiven you for that, Paul. You see, the worst, the worst I've ever done in a scenario was uh, one where I gave a character a list of Bible references with an extra number on the end so that it referenced the fact, oh, it's obviously chapter, verse, word. And that all they had was this very short list, probably no more than about 10 or 12 words that they had to pick out of different Bible verses. That doesn't take long. That's the, the worst I've ever thrown at someone. Yeah, I, I, I've always been a big fan of the idea that if there's something like this, uh, then the players can sort it out in character. Hmm. The icing on the cake was really when Mike said that you could have just asked for the make a roll. Yeah. <laughs> the look of hatred on that face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, which I'd, I'd actually started out by doing. <laughs> but, but uh, yes, if I remember correctly, that was a delaying tactic. <laughs> It wasn't a delaying tactic. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Anyway, all water under the bridge. Foul, fetid. <laughs> One for each lobe. <laughs> you're definitely going to get charged for that one. <laughs> uh, so, um, yes. Anyway, puzzles and games. Shit idea. <laughs> I can remember playing games with you, Matt, and I'm not sure if I was running the game or playing the game with you, but you got totally hung up on 
a handout mm. and over the, the edge hidden yes. code in it mm-hmm. I think were you yeah. running the game so no that that was James, James Mullen. Mullen yeah, yeah. You, you being totally hung up on this code being present in this handout how is how I saved the world on, there how, no it was there that was the point was it there yeah, yeah. it's how, oh, I, how I saved the road on the world I thought it wasn't there at all no, the, the, the I think James was... just kind of went along with it and then then you kind of seemed to make sense of it and he just nodded and said okay yeah. no no there were loads and they all, they all interlinked so they all formed another uh, another puzzle at the end but we, right. we kind of accidentally skipped to the end by going to one of the places on our uh, you're good at that sort of stuff you see he would have probably cracked those codes in five minutes in that game Scott the look of hatred is perfect. I need a camera to yeah. Yeah. Yes. Now that we've got this big, hefty new microphone, the next sound you will hear is me beating Paul to death with it. Don't touch the Yeti. <laughs> the Yeti bites. That's the name of our mic. That's not our familial name for it. That's its name. I think that should be the name of the podcast. Don't touch the Yeti. Blue Yeti. It isn't blue. It's not very, very, not very furry either. But very shiny. Very, very shiny. Anyway, oh, yeah, okay, <laughs> but yeah, that was that was James doing over the edge. Yeah, yes, yeah. I, I didn't mind that so much, mainly because you did it. Because <laughs> yeah. as soon as I, se- as soon as the session started, it was right. Give me a hand out. Blitz through it, and because I didn't have two hours of two GM sitting there staring at me while I did. <laughs> so really, what would we do with that book of cryptograms in a game? Well, I mean, you know, in a case like that, I'd, I'd probably put it down to something like an intro or to, you know, um, or, or even a cryptography role if someone's got that as a scientific specialisation to try to, you know, work out, decode it to the ACLO in the first place and then an ACLO role, role or Cthulhu Mythos role to actually um, Yeah, be it. come under Cthulhu Mythos perhaps. Yeah. Um, and I can see them if they were under a time pressure, perhaps wanting to push the role yeah. um, using 7th Ed mechanics. And, you know, what are you <clears> doing to push the role? Well, I'm staying up all night, you know, gathering loads of books and, uh, you know, trying to to, to to draw all of my knowledge together and just, just working on it until I actually crack it. And, you know, we can see that kind of going wrong as a, as a consequence mm. of failing the role a second time and you coming to with the, the, the you know, written all over your walls and... Windows in lipstick and um, arms, and what? And your arms, yeah, and yeah, all running down the street, shouting in echo at people, or or something more mundane like you know just breaking your health from exhaustion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do that when writing scenarios anyway, so that'd be a bit too real for me. Oh, if you would stop writing in an echo, though, that would be good. <laughs> that just makes it more fun when Scott edits, Scott's editing it. Look, my, the secret that I have to editing your scenarios, Matt, is I just go through and cut out every fifth word. Oh, damn. <laughs> it hasn't failed me yet. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's been a far less structured conversation than we perhaps planned, but I think we've covered all the bases of, of how to use these elements from these stories in games, how they have been used, and, um, you know, but I, I hope given you a few ideas about, um, you know, how you can do something similar yourself. I must admit, I'm actually quite tempted to write a scenario now that would follow up from Shadow of the Steeple. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, I think that'd be really cool. So, um... I think there's nothing at this stage to do but remind you that we can be found on Facebook uh, as the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, uh, on Google Plus as the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, and on Twitter as the Good Friends of J.E.O. Sorry, Good Friends of J.E.E. Yeah, come on over, like us, follow us, 
join us. Plus, to plus us, one us. Whatever yeah. you want. Add us to circles. Yeah. Well, that about wraps it up for tonight. Um, the first been... of our two parties. Hey. Indeed. Uh, so we've been the good friends of Jackson Elias, and remember that uh, near is far and dark is light. I bid you good night. Cheerio. And farewell.